cocaine, orgies, and pedophilia. Welcome to the Grand Old Perversion on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And Ike to you, and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 386 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. It's been another painful week of watching more Russian atrocities in Ukraine, the most recent a bombing of a train station in which at least 50 civilians were killed. And apparently more carnage is to come as a caravan of Russian tanks heads towards the eastern part of the country, hoping to commit more mass murder. And congratulations to the latest victory for the domestic terrorists here at home, as the jury in Michigan failed to convict four men who were on trial for plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Even the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson, a joyous moment for the history it represented, was still marred by a cynical clown show of obnoxious and dog-whistle questions that had nothing to do with her qualifications for the court. Speaking of clowns, leave it to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene to tweet that by voting to confirm Jackson, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Mitt Romney are all pro-pedophile. An interesting charge, given the fact that Greene's traveling companion is Matt Gaetz. To make matters worse, the fox roaming the Capitol, the one that bit nine people, including a congressman, was caught and euthanized last week, as were her three kits. The sad part about learning of the death of a rabid animal at the Capitol is the knowledge that there are so many more of them roaming the halls of Congress. It seems like I can spend the rest of this week's monologue venting my spleen at what's going on. That wouldn't be productive. So instead, I'm going to play some tape that, while from the bizarro world, nevertheless made me smile. Such as Herschel Walker, who spoke at a recent Trump rally in Georgia. People want to ask me all the time why I'm running. I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of them want to teach CTR in, in school. Critical race theory. Can you tell me what that means? Ah, uh, yes. CTR. Critical race theory. Though that doesn't come close to his comments at a recent church event about evolution. Here, that means somebody up there had to say, let there be light that the earth started. And then he had to put someone there on earth. Remember, Adam was there. Remember, Adam came there, then Eve came. So somebody had to start it out. So that means it had to be a God. Because then just uh, some bomb blew up and it started out. And then I, I tell you something else I heard, and I think about this. Because at one time, science said man came from apes. Did it not? Well, what, this was interesting, though. If that is true, why are there still apes? Think about it. I'm thinking about it. It makes complete sense that Walker skipped last Saturday's GOP debate in Gainesville. I can't help but imagine he would have been seen as anything but ill-informed. And just think, he's the clear Republican frontrunner and is leading in the polls against Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock. Wow. Speaking of Trump rallies, there was this one last week in Michigan— where the former president seemed transfixed over the pronunciation of Republican Congressman Peter Mayer's name. 
Mayer was one of the 10 GOP House members who voted to impeach Trump, and Trump endorsed the congressman's primary opponent, former HUD official John Gibbs. But Trump seemed less interested in making a case for Gibbs and more about pronunciation. A guy who spells his name M-E-I-J-E-R, but they pronounce it Meyer. The hell kind of a spelling is that? Meyer. Meyer. It's Meyer, but it's actually pronounced Meyer. I said, how the hell do you pronounce this guy's name? Nobody knows him. He's done nothing in Washington. I said, how do you pronounce his name? Is it Meyer? Meyer? They said, it's Meyer. How the hell do you get Meyer out of it? I'm sure that mocking the spelling of a common name in western Michigan really went over well in the Dutch community. And Sarah Palin is running for Congress. Why not, right? She jumped in the race following the death of Don Young, the Alaska Republican who had been the longest-serving member of his party in congressional history. Fox News' Jesse Waters asked her if she was prepared for what would likely be a media onslaught. When you get there, assuming you get there, You understand that the media jackals are going to descend on you and you're going to be walking down the halls to the cafeteria to go get a Pepsi. And you're just going to be swarmed by these reporters sticking these little microphones and recording devices in your face. Governor Palin, Palin, Congresswoman, uh, are you prepared for that onslaught? Because it's going to be pretty vicious. Uh, You know, I would never be so cocky as to say, bring it on. But (laughs) yes. I anticipate that when I walk down that hall to get my Diet Dr. Pepper, sure, the jackals are going to be there doing their jackaling. And I just think, I've got nothing to lose. What more can they do? What more can they say? A total of 49 candidates are running for Young's seat, with the special primaries being held on June 11th. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who is the last defeated candidate for vice president who, after finding himself out of office, later ran for the House or Senate. Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, The conventional wisdom is that the Republican Party is going to take control of the House in this year's midterm elections. But what happens in the Senate is anyone's guess. Of the 35 seats that are at stake, there are about nine that look truly competitive. And with the Senate currently deadlocked at 50-50, each one of these is crucial to determining whether or not President Biden can push forward his agenda for the remaining two years of his term. Jacob Rubashkin is a reporter and analyst for the political newsletter Inside Elections, and he's just released his summation of the battle for the Senate, and it's a good one. Jacob, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the first midterm election of a newly elected president is always seen as a barometer on the president's performance in office. And if that's the case, the Democrats have a a reason to worry, don't they? That's exactly right, Ken. Uh, Midterm elections 
tend to be a referendum on the president uh, and, and the president's party because the president himself isn't on the ballot. And uh, th- this year is shaping up to be no different. Uh, and, and with such narrow majorities in both the House and in the Senate, the narrowest possible majority in the, in the Senate, 50-50, um, it, it is going to be very tough sledding for, for Democrats to maintain, uh, given just how unpopular Joe Biden is across the country. When you look at the numbers and you see that, and I'm looking at the latest uh, NBC News poll, show that 7 in 10 Americans expressed low confidence in Biden's handling of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, inflation is at its highest in, in 40 years. And Biden's job approval rating has sunk to 40% with 55% disapproving, that, that's Donald Trump territory. Yeah, he is uh, in a bad place, for sure. I, I think that the, uh, there has been a snowball of events, beginning with the pullout from Afghanistan and continuing on with the economic troubles, that has uh, really put the skids on the, the positive momentum that the Biden administration was bringing uh, in its first year in office. And, and that just creates a very difficult climate for any Democrat on the ballot in uh, the midterms this fall, no matter what the state is, uh, given that Biden is uh, so unpopular. It means that he's, he's unpopular in Democratic-held states. He's unpopular in Republican-held states. But, you know, the thing that is keeping Democrats alive, one of the things that's keeping Democrats alive, at least, is simply that the map is more restrictive in the Senate than it is in the House and, and the, the states that are holding elections uh, have a little bit of natural favorability to Democrats. And, and that's a real lifeline to the party in such a challenging year. You know, I agree also. I think this is absolutely a referendum on Biden. But I know that, that some Democrats are trying to make this a choice of, of Biden versus Trump. I mean, obviously, Trump is, is playing a key role in many states with endorsements and such, and he's in the headlines a lot. And but, but at the same time, you know, Democrats tried to make Trump the issue last year in Virginia, and that didn't work. But is, is Trump a wild card at all in this midterm? Trump is always going to be a wild card. It's, it's kind of in his nature. Um, but, but I do think that at the moment, uh, the, the way in which we see Trump uh, playing the, the most significant role in the midterm is uh, how he has involved himself in the selection process for the various Republican candidates. I think you make a good point about uh, Virginia, New Jersey, the gubernatorial races, where we saw Democrats really try and make Trump the issue, uh, particularly in, in Virginia when uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe took to uh, calling Republican Glenn Youngkin, Glenn Trumpkin, um, and it didn't work. Uh, it was not enough to get McAuliffe over the finish line. Uh, and I think Democrats took some lessons from that. But I, I do think that uh, when it comes to Trump's impact on the midterms, the things that I look to are his scaring away of, of top Republican recruits uh, across the country, guys like Larry Hogan uh, and, and Doug Ducey, um, who... Chris Sununu. Uh, Chris Sununu. Uh, though Sununu's in a bit of a different place because... Uh, all signs point to Trump, actually, uh, at this point, uh, back back in the end of last year, uh, Trump was actually urging Sununu to run, as opposed to Doug Ducey, where it seems like every every uh, every two weeks we get a statement in our inboxes saying that Trump's going to, you know, smash Doug Ducey to smithereens. But I think that the, the scaring away of the, the most viable contenders and then the elevation of uh, contenders that are not the, the most 
uh, credible candidates, uh, specifically thinking of a guy like Herschel Walker, who comes into the Georgia Senate race with a lot of strengths, but also more baggage than I think most other Senate candidates in, in modern history. And there, there are other places that the president has, the former president hasn't involved himself in yet that are still, uh, we see his imprint uh, in races like in Ohio and in Arizona, where Republicans are really going out of their way to try and be the most Trump-like candidate in an effort to win his endorsement. Uh, and in a state like Arizona, which Trump lost in, in 2020, that might not be the, the, the most straightforward way to win back that Senate seat. Let me go back to the economy for a second. I was, I'm just thinking the last time inflation was this high was, was 1982, and, and President Reagan and the Republicans paid a big price uh, in the midterms that year, they lost 26 seats in the House. Most of this conversation is really going to be about the Senate, but let me just ask you, is it fair to say that the the question is not whether Democrats will lose House seats, but how many? I think the clear, poss- the, the, the clear likelihood is that uh, we are in a how many situation. Democrats have just a five-seat majority in the House of Representatives. That's a historically narrow uh, hold on the chamber. Uh, if you look back over the last hundred years of midterm elections, the party out of power picks up on average 29 seats in in the House midterms, and 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 that's just it paints a dire picture for Democrats. Uh, their their majority is so thin, uh, it, it really does not take very much at all for uh, Republicans to to get what they need and have room to spare. No, nothing is ever 100%, and, and this, this is not 100% either. But, but I think at this point in time, we can say with a fair degree of confidence that the, the Republicans are more than likely to, to take back the House. I think the Senate just seems harder to figure, but, but let me give you my list of the nine seats I think we should be watching. Um, I have five for the Republicans, uh, Marco Rubio in Florida, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, and, and three open seats, uh, the ones uh, being given up by Richard Burr in North Carolina, Rob Portman in Ohio, and Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. And, for the, and four on the Democratic side, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Is there any I'm leaving out, or, or there are some that shouldn't be on this list? That's a good list. Uh, you know, here at Inside Elections, we... We have that list minus Ohio. Uh, we, we, we're obviously watching Ohio very closely, but the, the reality is Ohio was uh, in a bit of a different position in terms of the presidential ballot uh, than the rest of these states, with Trump winning it by nearly 10 points, both in 16 and in 20. Um, but I think that Ohio is, is certainly a credible uh, addition to the board. Uh, the one other state that I would uh, point out at the moment, uh, on the Republican side at least, is Missouri. I think there's a real potential for that race to develop into a headache for the Republican Party if Eric Greitens, the disgraced former governor, is the nominee. You know, that, that's not necessarily a seat that they would lose, even with Greitens as the nominee, but uh, it's a seat that would uh, cause them a fair amount of trouble in terms of spending resources to, to, to hold it when it's a seat that they should not have to spend more than a couple seconds thinking about. Uh, let alone the uh, prospect of having to serve in the United States Senate with Eric Greitens, which I think uh, is is not something that Mitch McConnell wants to do. Um, uh, on the other side, I think... Before you, before you go away, uh, it is kind of remarkable to see states like 
like uh, Eric with Eric Reitens in Missouri and Herschel Walker in Georgia, uh, uh, two candidates with such skeletons in their past and not their distant past, and yet they seem to be leading the pack, or at least so far. Yeah, it is quite interesting to see. Uh, I think specifically in the case of Herschel Walker, he uh, he entered that primary with with a level of uh, goodwill. Uh, and name ID that is is pretty much unheard of for a first-time candidate. He is universally known in Georgia, and even though his playing career in in the state of Georgia ended four decades ago, uh, still beloved. Uh, And and people simply do not know uh, very much about the various accusations of domestic violence and abuse and business fraud and and, and all of the things the Democrats are going to uh, hammer him on. But, but I think the combination of that kind of uh, local, not just celebrity, but, but hometown hero, combined with the, the rousing endorsement from, from Donald Trump, who uh, is the whole reason why anyone's talking about Herschel Walker running for Senate, because he said last year, I'd love to see Herschel Walker run. Um, the, those two things made him pretty unbeatable in, in that primary uh, and then, of course, no Republican wanted to to challenge him. The the uh, highest tier Republican who's who's in that race is the state agriculture commissioner, who you know seems to be fairly well regarded. But uh, at the same time, no, nobody really takes him seriously. It's not as if Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins or David Perdue or any of the members of the state's congressional delegation decided to mount a a, a real campaign against Herschel Walker. Um, you know, on the Greitens side. Uh, we're still early into the, the news cycle of the latest round of allegations against him, uh, what, what his ex-wife, Sheena Greitens, accused him of in, in, in some recent court filings. You know, I, I think we've got to give that some time to see how it'll play out. My, my baseline assumption is, you know, if the, if the reports of the uh, sexual misconduct and, and alleged blackmail uh, didn't stop him from being the front runner to begin with. I'm I'm, I'm skeptical that uh, this latest set of of accusations will change that, but it remains to be seen. I, I think Herschel Walker is going to be the nominee for Republicans in the state of Georgia. Uh, I am less confident uh, that Eric Greitens is going to be the nominee for Republicans in the state of Missouri. And you know the reason I mentioned jo- uh, Ohio, of course, is because. You know, the as you say, we have to watch and see who wins the Republican primary on May third. But, but they are eating each other alive there, and I suspect that whoever wins the primary is going to have a lot of Republicans, you know, angry at him or her. The Republican primary in Ohio is is one of the messiest. I think up until recently, it certainly would have qualified as the messiest, but Pennsylvania may be uh, fast approaching uh, that territory as well. The thing about Ohio is simply that it it has just become so Republican. Uh, in recent years, Democrats have really struggled to win uh, statewide races in Ohio. Uh, the last one to do it, Sherrod Brown in 2018 in a great year against a very flawed candidate. Um, and even then, uh, no other Democrat won in Ohio statewide, uh, despite the strong uh, tailwinds for Democrats. The gubernatorial candidate, Richard Cordray, didn't win. Uh, none of the statewide office candidates won. And obviously, Trump won it in 2016 uh, and in 2020. So Tim Ryan is a good candidate. He he is credible. He is raising good money. He doesn't have a, a serious primary to worry about. Um, but but given the makeup of the state and the national environment, uh, even with a candidate that exits the Republican Party 
wounded and, and, and having to do some work to reunite the Republican Party behind them uh, starts out with, with a clear advantage. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing about the, the Republican candidates tripping themselves over are tripping over themselves to, to appear the most Trump-like and out-Trump each other is that Trump won Ohio. Um, and so I'm not convinced that being the Trumpiest candidate is, is necessarily a disadvantage for whoever emerges from that primary. Historically, the best ways to win a, a seat is, is when there's an open seat. You know? So when you have Burr retiring in North Carolina and Toomey retiring in Pennsylvania, those could be uh, the best shots for the Democrats to pick up a seat. Uh, what do you see in those states? I think Pennsylvania is the best shot for Democrats to flip a seat uh, heading into 2022. Close call between there and Wisconsin, but uh, my my personal preference goes goes to Pennsylvania. With the open seat, it, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, this primary between Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick on the Republican side is the most expensive Republican primary in the country this this year and, and potentially in in history, given how wealthy uh, both of those two candidates are any amount of money that they put behind their campaigns. The Democratic primary there is getting increasingly messy. But but I do think that that's going to be uh, one of, if not the most competitive race come the fall. I think North Carolina is in a different situation because that that's a state that is far more competitive for being an open seat than it would have been if Richard Burr had decided to uh, seek re-election. And that's another state where you also have an early Trump endorsement with uh, Congressman Ted Budd against who, who somebody who, who was for the longest time uh, the Republican frontrunner, but maybe not so much anymore. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the worst thing that happened to former Governor Pat McCrory uh, in, in this primary is that uh, the primary was delayed two months. Uh, due to legislation over over the redistricting process, uh, he entered this race as the front runner with a financial advantage, with a name ID advantage over Congressman Ted Budd, um, and has uh, every additional day that this primary goes on is is a bad day for him because he's losing support as Budd is gaining support and more people are learning about the Trump endorsement uh, that is Budd's main calling card. I think if the primary had been held on the original date. Um, in the middle of March, Pat McCrory probably would have won. But at this point, the, the latest round of polling suggests that he has finally seated that first place spot. Uh, he's still very much in the game. Um, and we still do have about a month and a half before uh, the North Carolina primary. Uh, but it looks to be like uh, like Ted Budd has, has finally uh, ensconced himself in, in first place in that race. Uh, he does have to uh, get over a threshold to avoid a runoff, but you know that's a race where uh, things really have changed um, over the course of the primary, and and to the detriment of of Pat McCrory, uh, and and to the benefit of the Trump endorsed candidate Ted Budd. And the two Democrats uh, who I think are most vulnerable, uh, they they won special elections in the last cycle. Mark Kelly in uh, in Arizona and Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Um, they won by the most narrow of margins. Biden won both states by the narrowest of margins, and they're usually Republican-leaning states, so those will be tough for, the, for Kelly and Warnock to hold on. Kelly and Warnock are two of the most vulnerable Democratic senators 
Democrats are fortunate, however, that they're also two of the strongest Democratic incumbents. The double-edged sword of having won uh, the, these special elections in, in 2020 and, and January 2021, as, as Raphael Warnock did, is, A, you've got to run again so soon, which uh, no senator really wants to do. But B, you benefit a little bit from the, the recency of your last campaign. There were hundreds of millions of dollars in, in advertising spent on behalf of both Senators Kelly and Warnock. And, and that is a nice foundation from which they can launch their their uh, new campaign. And both of them are, are the two best fundraisers in the Democratic Party. Their their fundraising lists are the envy of, of the email fundraising world, and they're both good fits for their state. And so I, I think that they do start out with uh, a fair number of advantages that are keeping them in the game. Uh, but like you said, Arizona and Georgia are still Republican-leaning states. Um, now, they are still Biden states. And I think that is an important distinction to remember. Um, these are states that Joe Biden won that, that uh, Hillary Clinton didn't win in, in 2016. So they're states not just that, that uh, can vote for Democrats, but, but are on the move, uh, politically speaking. And, and so they've got some things in their favor, but they've, they're, they're also working against pretty serious headwinds. At the moment, uh, we see the most likely outcome here uh, being a Republican net gain of between one and three seats. Uh, which, of course, would be enough for a majority. Uh, it's perfectly possible that Democrats overperform expectations uh, and and hold Republicans to a push and maintain their 50-50 majority. It's also very possible that this develops into a true wave year and Republicans pick up four or five seats. Uh, but at the moment, uh, that one to three range is where we have our most confidence. But even one to three, you could forget about uh, Joe Biden filling a vacant uh, Supreme Court seat. Absolutely. Not going to happen. Jacob Rubashkin is a reporter and analyst for the political newsletter Inside Elections. You can check his stuff out on Twitter at Inside Elections. Jacob, it's great having you on the show, and this is going to be some year. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Happy to be here, Ken. Thanks so much. You're going to take a walk in the rain, and you're going to get wet. I'm sure most of you know who Madison Cawthorn is, but for those who don't, he's that 26-year-old freshman Republican from the western part of North Carolina who is seen as a rising star in the party, but who also may have embellished parts of his early life and who was accused by several women of sexual misconduct in college. He voted against recognizing Joe Biden's election as president. More recently, he said he was invited by unnamed members of Congress to attend a sex orgy and that he witnessed one doing cocaine. He later backtracked on that. He hasn't been reprimanded by the leadership and, unlike Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney, hasn't been censured by the party. But he is facing a potentially serious challenge in the May 17th primary against a candidate who has been endorsed by Republican Senator Tom Tillis and leaders of the state legislature. Tom Fiedler has been watching all of this. He's a former longtime reporter for the Miami Herald, who later became the dean of the Boston University College of Communication. He's now a reporter with the Asheville Watchdog, 
a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization in Western North Carolina focused on local government and issues. Tom, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Well, it's great to talk to you, Ken. Cawthon seems to thrive by keeping himself in the headlines, but I think everybody agrees that he went a little bit too far last month in an appearance on the Warrior Poet Society podcast. The sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington, the average age is probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know... It, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes. You should come. And I'm like, what, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. Uh, and then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild. The podcast host, John Lovell, didn't ask him any follow-up questions. But I think it's fair to assume that it wasn't Democratic members of Congress who invited him to these orgies. It wasn't Democrats who he saw snort cocaine. And so if it was, it had to be Republicans. And assuming it was Republicans, that couldn't have made Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader in the House, too happy. Oh, absolutely right. I think um, in many ways uh, what we're seeing with uh, Congressman Cawthorn here is he is now reaping what he has sown. He made it very clear uh, when he was uh, elected and then when he entered Congress that his uh, he saw his mission not really to uh, make legislation. In fact, um, he said as much that he felt that, that he, he was in Congress uh, to get publicity, to uh, you know, get attention for the causes that he felt uh, were important, and those causes essentially were to move the Republican Party and the country to the right. And so he he built a staff that was entirely around getting his his name, his face, his tweets, and so forth out in in the public, and um, uh, and had very very little uh, to do with the legislative process in Congress. And so so he set out to do that, and he was, I guess, extraordinarily successful, I suppose, but now, based on what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, it's uh, kind of come around and perhaps bit him because uh, we have found out that um, you can do an awful lot to uh, test Kevin McCarthy's patients except call uh, Republicans uh, perhaps coke snorters and um, sex, uh, sex party attendees. Do you know what he said to Cawthon when he talked to him? Well, I, I I can only say what um, what he has uh, said and and the way Cawthorn rather initially sheepishly but later I think much more aggressively has come out and um, what uh, McCarthy did say to him is that uh, what he said uh, McCarthy said Cawthorn admitted that his I think the word that Cawthorn used that he had exaggerated. Uh, his statements and his claims, McCarthy uh, pushed back right away and said that Cawthorn had said that they were not true, and he denigrated them. In fact, he said that Cawthorn admitted under questioning that the only thing he saw or thought he saw uh, as far as the uh, cocaine snorting went was somebody across a darkened parking garage who looked like they might be snorting something. (laughs) A hundred yards away, right? 
uh, were 100 yards. So, so there was um, some pretty quick back uh, backtracking. But then, um, so McCarthy told, uh, just said he told Cawthorn that he no longer trusted him and that uh, Cawthorn would have to earn back his trust. We'll see what that means. Um, didn't take Cawthorn very long to get back out on the House floor and begin leveling some of these just uh, really, I think, uh, crazy attacks. So, um, so we'll see how long he stays uh, uh, in McCarthy's woodshed. Here's what uh, Cawthorn said. He said, My comments on a recent podcast appearance calling out corruption have been used by the left and the media to disparage my Republican colleagues and falsely insinuate their involvement in illicit activities. The left and the media want to use my words to divide the GOP. I will not back down to the mob, and I will not let them win. Uh, How dare the media use Cawthorn's actual words? Uh, I know, I know. Uh, it's it's amazing uh, if that, those are the words of someone who has been chastened. Um, I don't know. I think uh, the old Patrick Henry uh, response, "Give me liberty or give me death," might be that, uh, that 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 sort of lead that he seems to follow. He's he's yeah, he's just back at it. Uh, he went on the House floor uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and now the latest Republican thing, I think, is to pick up and claim that um, anybody who supports uh, Judge Jackson there, they've got to be uh, closet sex perverts. And, and so Cawthorn goes on the House floor and decides that he's going to go after Nancy Pelosi uh, about whether she actually knows what the definition of a woman is. Of course, this was a question that came out of uh, Jackson's uh, confirmation hearings. And I think McCarthy has about had as much of it as he can take. Uh, the question is, what will he do? And um, whether there will be any move at all to... Uh, obviously, they're not silencing him, or he wouldn't be out there on the House floor. But, you know, any an action um, like with Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, removing her from her committees or something. I, uh, you know, so far, nothing really substantive has happened. And, and has, has Marjorie Taylor Greene suffered from being removed from committees? I don't think so. Oh, no. And she said right away that um, she thought that would free her up from uh, whatever real serious legislating there had to be so that she could uh, go off and raise a lot more money and a lot more stink. In addition to everything else, we've, seen, we've recently seen police videos of Cawthorn being stopped three times for speeding, uh, with one of the times him telling the officer that he didn't have his license or his wallet with him. Apparently his license has been suspended. Um, how is all of this playing back home, especially with Republicans? Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's, it's, it's having an effect. Um, I think there's a lot of, there had been a lot of patience about this, and uh, and it was, I think, uh, it was it was sympathy, because here was this young guy, and um, at least as he was uh, appeared to be in the 2020 uh, Republican primary and election back then, this young man, who was filled with promise and idealism, and um, all of that happened uh, to be um, at least cut short for a time by. The tragedy that befell him in the car accident. And so I think people gave him a long, long uh, runway, so to speak. Um, uh, and, but I, that is coming to a close. It began to take hold um, 
uh, even before all of this with his uh, reckless driving, um, the allegations there, but um, when he was constantly pushing other limits, um, he was stopped uh, trying to get on board a flight out of Asheville with uh, a, uh, a pistol in his uh, carry-on luggage. In effect, it was uh, it was loaded. He had um, the, there were bullets in the pistol. Uh, TSA found it and stopped it, and um, a report was made of it, but no um, crime was filed. He then um, showed up. Uh, not just once, but four on four occasions um, before either school board audiences or in um, audiences before with uh, students uh, carrying what was described um, by the manufacturer as a combat knife. This is basically a a really powerful switchblade that he carried in uh, his pocket, and um, he was warned by a uh, deputy sheriff in Henderson County the first time, but then there were three other occasions in which he was photographed and warned once more by another sheriff. So I think over time, this began to raise um, eyebrows, but um, if anything really turned people, um, uh, I think, uh, perhaps in a questioning direction, it was uh, the active role that he played in uh, the rally prior to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and later on his defense of those people who had been arrested, you know, referring to them as patriots and so forth. And then you started to see people, particularly people um, in, uh, in, in party offices, the county commissioners, the county sheriffs and others say, now wait a minute, this uh, this is just not uh, the kind of thing that we as Republicans, as conservative Republicans, want to support. So that's what really has turned. But I know that what pushed a lot of Republicans over the edge is when the legislature began redrawing the congressional district lines, the, the Republican legislature created a new more Republican district to the east, and Cawthorn said, okay, I'm going to run there. And then when the map was thrown out, he said, okay, I'm going to stay in my old district. He got a lot of, you know, a lot of, lot of different Republicans were making plans and campaign announcements based on the fact that Cawthorn said he was going to move. That's, uh, that's exactly right. And uh, that, that effort uh, to jump into a new congressional district, I think, also raised uh, a lot of hackles among traditional Republicans and others. The district that uh, Cawthorn wanted to jump into would have been um, a so-called 13th congressional district, but it was a new one that was created because of North Carolina's uh, growth in the census, and it was created specifically so that the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, um, could uh, run in it. And, of course, Cawthorn didn't even wait um, or, you know, beg your pardon. He, uh, Cawthorn, as soon as that district was, uh, was, was posted, Cawthorn announced that he was going to jump into it and essentially slammed the door shut on uh, Tim Moore's fingers, which made a lot of people pretty angry right away. That's when um, we had State Senator Chuck Edwards and a few other people come in and decide to run. It certainly brought Chuck Edwards into the mix. But um, at this point, so you know, you're absolutely right. Chuck Edwards uh, has been uh, chairman of a number of committees in the state Senate. He's really considered 
uh, a reliable, hard worker, but extremely conservative lawmaker. And, um, uh, uh, the, the, and much of his state Senate district uh, already overlaps with the uh, what remains of that uh, 11th congressional district. So he is a major, major threat to uh, Cawthorn's renomination. And I think the threat that Cawthorn has is if he is held below 30% of the vote, which is the standard for nomination in North Carolina, he would be forced into a runoff. And I think um, there's, there's virtually no question that all the other candidates who fall short of that will rally behind whoever the uh, uh, opponent is to uh, Cawthorn in a runoff. But first, he has a megatour runoff. And, and right. right now, the polls show with him with at least 30 percent, even though, as you say, it's a multi-candidate primary. There's no question that Cawthorn is uh, of the mind that Donald Trump uh, supports him completely, and um, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not implied. It's, for him, it's absolutely real. He thinks he is Trump's uh, protege. You know, uh, the, the late-night comedians have been having a field day with, with Cawthorn, the latest of the orgy coke stories. Uh, let me play a little of Seth Meyers uh, from NBC's Late Night. Come on, man, you really expect us to believe that Congress could plan and execute an orgy? <laughs> At best, I could see them announcing an exploratory committee that would begin to investigate the feasibility of an orgy at a later day. And then it would grind to a halt because one faction would say they wouldn't go unless the orgy was carbon neutral. And then Joe Manchin would say he's only going to vote for the orgy if there was money for coal in it. And then someone would say, why do you need coal at an orgy? And Joe Manchin would say, I guess you've never been to a West Virginia sex party. You know, uh, Tom, I suspect Republican voters would be more influenced by a Trump rally than by Seth Meyers. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, um, probably Trump voters are mostly in bed by 9.30 anyway. <laughs> if the primary were simply Cawthorn versus Chuck Edwards, is there, is there enough anti-Cawthorn voters in the Republican Party uh, to, to, to endanger his uh, standing? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, there are, and that's a growing number. Uh, they just and again, right now, it's more anecdotal than uh, to whatever we might learn from polls uh, anymore. But if you start looking at um, you know the the traditional political influencers in um, in most rural areas, it's going to be the people, the county sheriffs, the county commissioners, those uh, you know lower level elected people. But they have in uh, low turnout mid-year elections, primary elections, those offices, um, they matter. And they matter, I think, uh, uh, as much or more than a Donald Trump rally might matter. And one of the things that I think is really turning on Cawthorn, he had the uh, support, the uh, public endorsement of every Republican sheriff in Western North Carolina when he ran in uh, 2020 in that primary. That was pretty extraordinary because sheriffs in rural counties are very powerful. They tend to draw from both sides of the political aisle and they draw the independent. And that, and that was a primary where Trump endorsed his opponent, right? That's right, Trump. That's right, and Mark Meadows, uh, Mark Meadows' wife was best friend of the uh, opponent, Linda Bennett. But nonetheless, the sheriffs um, in Western North Carolina tended to go toward um, uh, Cawthorn. He has lost 
I think if not every one of them um, is certainly all but one or two of them, and they're either publicly willing to say that they're going to endorse one of his opponents, either Chuck Edwards or Colonel Honeycutt. They seem to be the beneficiary so far. But no um, Republican sheriff so far in Western North Carolina has come out publicly and endorsed Cawthorn for renomination, and, and that holds true also of a number of the county commissioners and other local offices. Uh, they're very quiet about it, and um, I think that that uh, silence speaks volumes about the threat that uh, Cawthorn faces. Okay, we have just over a month to go before the primary. Uh, what happens? Tell me what happens. Well, I think, again, the key to watch is um, whether Cawthorn is going to be able to go back and mend fences. He's got to do sort of an apology tour, go back to those people that uh, felt like he at least flirted with the idea of abandoning them by running in that district to the east. Um, We'll have to see how that goes. Um, I think it's going to be tough. And I think also um, there are a lot of other issues that um, that, that, uh, are, are of concern to people here. Uh, the biggest one has been whether there is uh, uh, somebody in Washington, uh, there, whether the congressman there actually spends time back in the district. Right now, I think Cawthorn has been tagged with being um, the so-called show horse rather than the workhorse. That's, I think, beginning to uh, show up. So I noticed yesterday he came out and warned people about forest fires in Haywood County. I thought, you know what, That's <laughs> he, somebody told him that he better at least uh, recognize that uh, there are some issues down here on the ground that uh, people care about. And, and he's uh, on the right, he was on the right side. He's against forest fires, so that's good. Right, that's absolutely right. So, uh, but you know, he showed up at a uh, uh, one of the local counties here. I think it was Macon County, and uh, at a one of those check presentations, he was going to give a two hundred and I want to say fifty thousand dollar check to the county um, because of the um, uh, of infrastructure support. So there he is um, with one of those big oversized checks that you see. Um, you know, like when Publishers Clearinghouse shows up at your door, big check, and a reporter asks him from the back, well, uh, Congressman, didn't you vote against the bill that had this money in it? And he mumbled in something. He said, well, uh, you know, I voted against it when it came up for final vote, but I was for it in the uh, the committee. uh, Where's John Kerry when we need him, right? Exactly right. So uh, that that kind of thing made um, made uh, made some waves in that part of the county, and people realize, you know what? We don't have somebody in Washington who is really taking care of us. Tom Fiedler is a former reporter and editor for the Miami Herald, who's now working with the Asheville Watchdog, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization in Western North Carolina. Tom, it was great having you on the program, and uh, I'll see you at the next orgy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, If I can stay up that late, Ken. (laughs) Thanks so much, Tom. All right, great. Thanks.
Donald Trump sent out a mailing this week promoting his Saturday rally by pointing out the fake news media is working overtime with their partners, the Democrats, to hide Joe Biden's failures, and it's important that the nation hears from a true leader, President Donald J. Trump. Of course, what's a Trump rally without this familiar war cry? But they can make anything bad because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. And that feeling is shared by other conservatives. But it's not just right-wingers who are angry with the media. When CBS News recently announced the hiring of former Trump chief of staff Mick Mulvaney to provide analysis, the left went berserk. Mehdi Hassan, a host on MSNBC Peacock, was pretty much beside himself. The same Mick Mulvaney who accused the media of trying to bring down Trump by reporting on COVID in February of 2020, uh, who defended withholding military aid from Ukraine, he said, get over it, uh, who predicted in a column in 2020 that Trump would gracefully accept defeat if he lost. Mm -hmm. CBS News, uh, their president said, according to a reporting obtained by The Washington Post, that being able to make sure that we are getting access to both sides of the aisle is a priority because we know the Republicans are going to take over most likely in the midterms. And late-night comedian Samantha Bee, host of TBS's Full Frontal, had this to say. Hey, it's me, Sam B. I want to address people who think the news media can be naive or unethical because sometimes you might be right. Biden has announced a $5.8 trillion budget proposal for the 2023 fiscal year. Here to discuss is Mick Mulvaney. I am pleased to welcome him as a CBS News contributor. You're the guy to ask about this. What the F? CBS News? This dickbag was very recently the budget director and acting chief of staff in the most corrupt administration since the Lannisters. So no, he's not the guy to ask about this. The only thing you should ask Mick Mulvaney about is where he's taking the Ark of the Covenant. CBS, baby, I know you're trying your best, but next time Hannibal Lecter isn't available for a segment, maybe just use a haunted ventriloquist doll. With our frustration with the media... Our anger at the media, our fascination with the media. What better time to talk about a new book on this very subject? Jane Hall is an associate professor in the School of Communication at American University in Washington and the author of Politics and the Media, Intersections and New Directions. Professor Hall, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. And you know, I, I was talking to you before we, we, we started recording here. I spent eight years at ABC News and, and nearly 20 at NPR. And, and the thing we always like to tell ourselves is that if the left is angry at us and, and the conservatives are angry with us, we must be doing something right. But I think, I think journalists are missing the point if they think there's no problem with how the media operate. Well, you know, I think you're right. I, I, that, is, that was the standard response when I covered the news media for the Los Angeles Times before I started teaching. And I think that the news media should be concerned about the fact that the idea that the media are liberal has been pretty well baked into a lot of conversation in places outside of New York and Los Angeles. As, as I've been talking to people about my book on some talk radio programs, I mean, it's just the liberal media. And the equation is that uh, Fox News and MSNBC are the same. Um, there's a tremendous and growing lack of trust in all of our institutions. In, in my view, the, the 
the attacks on the news media from Donald Trump really took root. And before that, by positioning themselves as the only fair and balanced network, Roger Ailes and Fox News and their loyal base uh, have really believed, bought into this idea, and at the same time, in reaction, in my view, to Donald Trump, CNN, hosts like John Lemon and others began to say and feel that they wanted to say that Donald Trump was lying, and that presented a real problem for the news media. So it's really out there in the country uh, when you talk to a lot of people. It's accepted as fact by a lot of people that the news media are liberal, that they, they don't report fairly and accurately. I think it should be of real concern um, to people who run news media organizations. Why is it that people don't understand the value of what we do? Well, I think, you know, I mean, first of all, I would say that probably the rise of, uh, Rush, of Rush Limbaugh was probably predicated yes. on the fact that, the, you know, the media was so far left. But more importantly, or more disturbing to me at least, is not whether it's, uh, it's leading to the left or leading to the right, but, but it's need, the media's need to be so even-handed. While Donald Trump is saying something so outrageous and so insulting and such obviously untrue, and yet the media, because they always know that we have to report both sides of it, they feel, you know, the, the what about her emails seem to be the shorthand for, um, you know, we're going to be fair and balanced. But, but that's crazy. It's not a question of left and right. It's a question of right, well, like right and wrong, or at least, you know, when, when somebody is clearly lying or talking about undemocratic things like, like, you know, overthrowing the government, for God's sakes. Um, it's, it's not a, on the one hand or on the other hand. Yes, you know, there's, I, I completely agree with you. There are not two equal sides to every question, you know, and I think that a convention that has been true for the news media that they want to get, quote, both sides is in many ways a fallacy. I, I do think that there is an imbalance in the way that, that certain media have promoted the idea that the media are, are out to get the Republican Party, that they are in bed with the Democrats. If you talk to people in the Biden administration, they don't feel that that's been true. They have their own complaints. What I think also is true, though, Ken, is that this whole idea of objectivity has led to what really has been false balance. And you have attacks on the, on the left for the corporate biases of news media. I mean, Bernie Sanders and his supporters began to speak more about the corporate bias. What doesn't get covered, you know, because of the commercial nature of the, of the American media. So it's coming from both sides. But I think the right has been far more successful than the left at talking about this, at saying that the media are throwing the story and they're unfair. I mean, nobody ever went broke attacking the media. You know, Donald Trump has been attacking the news media, was attacking the news media. All of these politicians have it as what they say on the Republican side in particular. This is what they say, and therefore they're undermining the whole role of the news media and the democracy. I will say that in the coverage of Ukraine and in the bipartisan support for for the the story that we are seeing, you do see the news media reporting and being seen as having the kind of value that they really do have. And you also see the rise of what's happening in Russia and the rise of authoritarianism. I think even critics of the, of the media in this country 
probably you're saying, gee, you know, that, that, that kind of suppression of opinion, that kind of suppression of the reporting is not a good thing around the globe. Yeah, and it's also disheartening to see certain members of a certain political party in this country look at Putin as clever and genius and savvy. And I saw a poll that 61% uh, of Republicans, or maybe even higher, supported Putin over Biden. I mean, that's, you know, it's like, I mean, could you imagine Republicans in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis saying, you know, that Khrushchev is a really good guy and at Kennedy's a weekly. I mean, that's just, it's just so unheard of. And yet that's exactly what we're seeing now. But you know, another thing that bugs me about the media is that we have this need to identify uh, front runners and campaign coverage, mm-hmm. like like yeah. you know front runners and and this that's and that also reminds me of what when CBS did what CBS did in announcing the Mulvaney hire. They said, "Well, you know, the Republicans are likely going to win the midterms." I mean, why are we why are we anointing winners and losers before voters ever get to a to a voting booth? It's just it's lazy and it's unprofessional. Well, you know, there is the media primary, as you know, and the media as the great better of candidates. We're talking about people trying to establish themselves, in part through fundraising, as the front runner. And, you know, the fact is that the news media, when I was a daily journalist, I hated people lumping the news media together. But when you're outside and you look at it more, there are certain things that just happen. Uh, And one of the things that happens is that the media often miss people who are not establishment, who are not already front runners. I mean, Hillary Clinton and uh, Jeb Bush should be president, (laughs) you know, should have been elected because they were the ones who raised the most money. They were the ones who were uh, said to be the front runners. And then Donald Trump comes in completely uh, out of the blue in many ways. Bernie Sanders' appeal was missed, in my view, initially. Uh, by the the media. I mean, if you look at it, a lot of people, Jimmy Carter was missed initially, Barack Obama. Jimmy who, right? Remember Jimmy who? Yeah, Jimmy who. And and I think it's, you know, I think that a lot of people in the news media have, you know, realized, for example, that they they did miss Trump and his story. And then I think they may have course corrected and gone out and said, let's be sure to interview people who were Trump supporters, which is certainly very valid. But one of the things I found interesting this, was that sometime later it was shown that the people who voted for Donald Trump uh, were had incomes of over $50,000, a, a huge percentage of them. So it was almost like the story was missed initially, and then it was missed again. I think there's a lot of move right now, though. I don't want to be beating up on the media too much, Ken, because you see stories now about what's going on in the country, I think, more than perhaps we did in the past oh, I in think terms of... Go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, think of all how long it took the media to call out some of Donald Trump's claims as lies. I mean, for the oh, longest yes. time, that word was... If you mentioned that, you, you were going too far, but now what else can you call it? it? It took, I think, it took the media also a long time to come to that point. Well, you know, it did, and I think there's, you know, people who were critical of... Ronald Reagan being the Teflon president, uh, you know, he got pretty easy coverage uh, because he was very winning as a personality and because of the skill of his media advisors at the time. They started doing a lot of things with photo ops and flag visuals that everybody does today. 
Um, I think that the media were presented with a real dilemma. I, normally, there was a respect for the president of the United States, and calling the president of the United States a liar did not come easily. But then when people began to try to figure out what to do when you had press conferences where CNN reporters and other reporters were calling him a liar sort of in real time, I mean, I know that I was, I was somewhat put off by that. But it's a very difficult situation to be in if you're, if you're a journalist. You can have what um, one critic has called a fact sandwich, which I love, I, where you try to say in print, this isn't true. I mean, I do think we're not supposed to be stenographers, <laughs> you know, we're not supposed to be, we're supposed to be verifying. And, and, and yet when people attempt to verify, it in some ways confirms the idea that the media are against some politician. Remember, remember when Candy Crowley basically corrected Mitt Romney during that 2012 debate and the Republicans went ballistic. I mean, yeah. it, it was like, like you're taking signs, you're taking Obama's signs. That was, that was pretty dramatic for a, a debate moderated to do that. Now, I don't know if that was her role or not, but a lot of, a lot of people were, were shocked at that. A lot of people were very critical at the time. And, you know, again, I think that, you know, back to the Mulvaney hire, that argument that we're going to need access, uh, you know, from what I've read, that was in a, in a phone call that, that the Washington Post got hold of that was to the CBS people basically predicting the Republicans are going to win in the midterms and we need access. So that goes back to a whole other thing of mega panels and the mixing that has gone on for many years now of punditry and opinion. I mean, I actually think there's, there's an appetite more than there was maybe in recent years for, for quote unquote, just the facts reporting. You know, I think that there are people who are tired of the linking of opinion and the snark. Uh, and I, again, I draw a lot of heart from the tragic story, but the, but the wonderful reporting that has been done by news media in this country, including Fox News and their correspondents. I mean, people are seeing that people are dying to report a story, that people are being killed to bring that story, and, and many Ukrainians are being killed. I, I think that positioning that as a serious threat to democracy, I do feel that's opening up the idea of what do we need in this country? What do we need in democracy? We do need an independent press. You see what happens when you don't have that in Russia. That's a very extreme example. Well, then I think of what's going on with the January 6th commission, when a you know, committee which is trying to get at the truth, and yet so many people from the previous administration refuse to testify, refuse to come forward. I think our, unfortunately, the one thing that I've been thinking about so much is that our system of politics and the media really reward polarization and division. You know, we just had it certainly with the January 6th commission where, you know, Liz Cheney, you know, was viewed as a pariah uh, because she was willing to join a commission. I mean, when we had the 9-11 commission not that long ago, it was not it was not that partisan. And I think that people fundraised right out of the Supreme Court hearings that we just had, uh, a historic choice, and, and the Republicans were going after her because it was a prelude, in my view, to what they want to run on, the cultural wedge issues that they want to run on that have been successful. 
in in Virginia and in other places. And, you know, you have them grandstanding and then they turn around and say, look what I did and give me money. And I think that's part of what's going on right now. One, one thing I enjoyed about your book, or at least, uh, you know, I was going to say enjoyed, I was disheartened and enjoyed at the same time, but <laughs> the subject about women and Trump, and your book takes yeah. us through the Katie Couric insults, the, the Carly Fiorina insults, and all, all, the, all the comments about women's looks and their bodies, the, you know, the yeah. excess Hollywood. And then, I noticed, and then I also noticed in your book the fact that a clear majority of white women voted for Trump. I, what, do, what do we take away from that? Well, unfortunately, I think party identification, you know, uh, is, was pretty strong. And, and it, it was not unique to Trump, but I think that many people were surprised that that many women voted for Donald Trump. Um, there are people who are surprised to see that Latino men in Florida uh, voted for Donald Trump yeah. in, in, in spite of his immigration policies. I think that Trump's misogyny, I mean, you have to call it what it is, his misogyny just led to record numbers of women being elected to Congress in 2018. So progress, if you view more representation and a better balance for women and better representation, progress did come from the backlash against Donald Trump. I think what's going to be interesting to see personally is where do we go in terms of women voting in 2024? Uh, you know, I just asked my students if they thought Nikki Haley might become the first female president of the United States, just to be provocative with them. You know, we focus on the Democrats so much, but it may be, you know, we have to see how this is all going to play out. I, I do think there's been a lot of progress for women. It, certainly in, in terms of the news media, you have women moderating debates, you have many more women of color, many more women uh, in general represented in the media. But at the same time, you have newsmaking decisions are still made more by men than they are by women. And women are coming up in journalism schools, but they, they've yet to get to the top in many, many ways. There's still a lot of room to grow on that. And yet so many women, uh, when, when, we're, when the media are discussing uh, a campaign, so many women are, are being judged as whether they're likable enough, as you point yeah. out in your book. Uh, not that long ago, the Washington Post had a feature article about Hillary Clinton's cleavage. Uh, and you, <laughs> you pointed out that CNN did an entire segment on her bottom heaviness. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to... I remember in the 20, 2008 campaign... There was an instance in a Hillary Clinton rally where some guy yelled, iron my shirt, and people mm. laughed. I don't, I don't know how to respond to this. Well, you know, I really appreciate your focusing on women in politics because, you know, there are, there's a lot of misogyny. Uh, there's a lot of cultural, cultural misogyny, but it has been fanned, certainly, uh, by by the comments about female politicians. I mean, it's hard to say which came first, but, but to focus on Hillary Clinton's voice, focus on her pantsuits. I mean, again, I even go back to a story in the Washington Post about Condoleezza Rice and having on boots that made her look like a dominatrix when she went to her first State Department visit abroad. And I, I said... At the time, you know, I don't think we were critiquing Colin Powell's wardrobe. It doesn't work that way, and it's still in there. Uh, if you talk to people who do polling about what 
female politicians have to worry about. Likeability is huge. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were both considered unlikable, but people were willing to vote for him, and they were not nearly... I mean, she won, of course, but, but voters do not ask the same questions about likability and as in terms of men. Uh, they, they, if someone is seen as being able to, quote-unquote, do the job, that can overcome the sense of whether you like the person or not. Women still have this double bind. You know, Hillary Clinton was pilloried for talking about, I could have stayed home and baked cookies. Do you remember that? Oh, that goes sure. Back a long oh, sure. Way. And standing by Bill Clinton through the Monica Lewinsky story. It's interesting. My students view Bill Clinton far differently from how he was viewed at the time of Lewinsky. I mean, certain things... I think a lot changing. of us do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an example of how, oh, wait a minute, Me Too has happened, and and women w- view that differently, and, and young men as well. So there, there are changes, but these attitudes and the idea that it matters what a woman looks like and how a woman presents, and she can't be too strident. You know, I mean, there literally was... Uh, talk when Hillary Clinton was running about how she was basically emasculating because she was competent. I think the same thing happened in a slightly different way to Elizabeth Warren can. You know, she was, quote, unquote, another Hillary, another very polished person who seemed to know a lot. I mean, that, that seemed to bring up ideas that that was a bad thing to be very well prepared. Let me just switch gears for one second. I'm thinking of when the pandemic hit in 2020, um, remember Donald Trump spoke about this, you know, it was nothing more than the flu, that it was an effort created by the media and the Democrats to make him look bad. Uh, and then he came up with these insane concoctions about what treatments to, to take. I think, um, my favorite was injections with bleach. I always thought that was a clever one, but, but I think it's fair <laughs> to say that thousands and thousands of Americans died because they listened to him and they believed that this wasn't a big deal. And meanwhile, you know, 983,000 uh, in this country are dead. How would you assess the role of the media during all of this? Should, it, should they have sounded the alarm bells earlier or louder, or did they do the right job? What do you think? Well, I think that, again, you, you, you really have to make an exception, in my view, for, for Fox News. Fox News actively promoted the idea that certainly – Trump was Trump was promulgating, which was that this was no big deal, and that somehow the media were scaring you, that Fauci was scaring you, that there was something wrong with the wearing masks. And if you do research on this, and there have been research studies, the states and in which uh, people were told this wasn't a big deal, and the viewership to Fox really did impact on whether people have gotten vaccinated. I mean, so to your point, uh, people took the information, certainly on Fox News, that downplayed it, certainly from Donald Trump, and did not take the measures that the government was asking them to do. I mean, to the idea that we politicized mask wearing, uh, you know, again, 20 years ago, I, I don't know that this would have been the same situation. I think we're in a very toxic environment where it's very uh, polarized. And I do believe there's a middle in here of people who really don't want this to be the case. I really believe that. Well, let me, let me ask you basically a, a final question on this. Is there any, has there been or is there any long-term damage 
that may be to the media from Trump's nonstop attacks and insults? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Um, I, I absolutely believe that because if you have a drumbeat and you have a very big megaphone and you say it over and over and over again, I mean, there is a predisposition that was there before, as you said, going back to, to conservative talk radio. But when you have the president of the United States successfully getting a number of people to believe that the election was stolen, when in fact it was one of the most secure uh, elections in recent history, when you have people prom- promoting untruth and saying it over and over and over again, I think that his attacks on the media have absolutely had an, had an effect. I think you see it in this desire to be sure to have, uh, that CBS wanted to be sure to have access to Republicans. I mean, they're sort of fighting the perception that they don't know how to talk to Republicans. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're buying into the idea and it's, it's been very, very powerfully promulgated by Fox News and Donald Trump. I mean, there isn't that alliance between Joe Biden and, and, and networks. It just, it doesn't compute. It's not equivalent. It just isn't. Jane Hall is an associate professor in the School of Communication at American University in Washington and the author of Politics and the Media, Intersections and New Directions. Jane, uh, this is an important conversation and your book is a must-read. I'm I recommend it, and I think it was really great. And and thanks so much for being on The Political Junkie. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Your knowledge is, is deep and contemporary, and I really love talking to you. Jane, thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. <laughs>